From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. And today's uh, program is one that we first ran back in the year 2000, and we're rerunning it today because most of the show is about an FBI informant named Mark Whitaker. When this first aired, a screenwriter heard it on the radio, and he thought, this would make a good film. And this week, nine years later, that film, starring Matt Damon, directed by Steven Soderbergh, is opening around the country, and we thought it would be fun to listen back to the amazing true story. It's really quite something, what really happened. But uh, before we get to that story, just to kind of set things up and sort of set the stage for it, consider for a moment all the situations where you stop and you wonder, am I being paranoid? Is something wrong happening right in front of me here? Or is that just my imagination? People I know were complaining about the high price of milk. And my father-in-law, for example, who lives in Detroit, would come into town and say, my gosh, your milk is like a dollar higher than, than what we pay. This is Andy Hale, an attorney here in Chicago. A year ago, he'd already sued a grocery store for anti-competitive practices. And when he looked into the price of milk, he found that the two big supermarkets in town, Dominic's and Jewel, not only had the same price, but it was more than anyone else's price in town. And it always seemed to change at the same time. Because we followed the price of milk from about $3.09 up to three nineteen to three twenty nine. I forget how many exact price bumps there were, but we got to three sixty nine. And as far as we could tell, whenever one changed, it seems like the other one changed simultaneously. At most grocery stores at other cities in the country, it was about a dollar cheaper. And in fact, farmers are getting the lowest price they've gotten in two decades. But at the same time, milk in Chicago is at its highest level historically. But here's the crazy thing. Even though Andy Hill knows all that, that still doesn't prove that anything illegal is going on. It still doesn't mean that the two stores are sitting down in a back room somewhere and hatching evil plans to drive up the prices of the dairy products that make this city run. After all, it's legal for stores to see what their competition is doing, It's legal for them to match prices if they're low, stay competitive. We all benefit from that. It's legal for them to raise prices if they think they can get away with it. Dominic's and Jill say that that is all that is going on here, and Andy Hale does not have proof of anything else. The difficult thing with price-fixing cases, the difficult thing with conspiracy cases, is is proving uh, an agreement. And usually it's very difficult because people don't admit to that. Is the fix in? Or is it just our imagination? Consider this case. Our state legislature here in Illinois recently passed a bill. It was signed into law, and it said that if you were a company that made liquor, any kind of liquor product, and you had some distributor in Illinois who was doing what a liquor distributor does, which is buying from you and shipping to stores and bars and whoever, and if you decided at some point that you wanted to switch to a different distributor, somebody whose service was better, somebody more reliable, whatever, this law said, that unless a special board ruled that you had a good reason to switch, and the reasons had to be really, really good, you were not allowed to switch. Basically, it was a law that stopped you from freely choosing who you wanted to do business with. And who was the main force behind this law? Cindy Canary, the head of the Illinois Campaign for Political Reform, will tell you the answer. And be forewarned, it may sound suspicious, it was a man named Bill Wirtz. And his job? He owns the largest liquor distributorship in the state. What was the rationale that they that they had for this bill when it was d- debated? <laughs> well, 
what they lobbied on in the legislature was they took the tack that if manufacturers could go wherever they wanted, all of these liquor distributor jobs would go to foreigners. They would all go overseas. But wait a second. I know, if it's they're, crazy. If they're, if they're distributing liquor in Illinois, yeah. then that would pr- pretty much mean that these are trucks that are delivering alcohol <laughs> I know. in the state of <laughs> Illinois, right? I know, but the, the, big, the big pitch was we were going to lose all these jobs. The Federal Trade Commission examined the bill and concluded that there was no evidence of any need for it. And that, in fact, it would protect liquor distributors like Bill Wirtz from normal market forces and would probably increase alcohol prices besides. Cindy Canary says that a year before the bill passed, legislators used to point to this bill as an example of the kinds of special interest proposals that they were protecting us from every day. Proposals that could never actually get to be real laws. I was, I was on a panel out in the suburbs with a number of other panelists, um, including some members of the Illinois legislature. And one state senator said to me, he said, now, you campaign finance people, you always make such a big deal about quid pro quo and graft. You always say there's something there. He goes, and I'll give you an example, there's nothing there. This Wirtz bill, it'll never pass. If it passes, I'll take everyone in this room out to dinner. There were at least 70 people in the room. Um, we've yet to take him up on his invitation. And and, and that legislator, uh, he, he voted against it, I presume? No, he voted for it. Wait. <laughs> what happened? I don't know. This is, um, this is, this is Illinois, and, and, you know, things can change with the wind blowing a different direction. As you may have heard, the wind shifts directions a lot in these parts around Chicago. And some really beautiful reporting in the Chicago Tribune pointed out how Bill Wirtz may have helped the wind blow through numerous ten dollars $15,000 contributions to key legislators and by hiring 28 lobbyists, 28, including a former governor, Jim Thompson. But is it fair to say that Wirtz just put the fix in, just bought this vote? I think there's always a hazy area. You can never know for sure. You know, if it's a for sure thing, then you... France, you know, you get into the area of bribery. If you say, you know, here's 10000 for your campaign committee, I want you to vote this way, that's bribery. If you say, here's $10,000, you know, we just really like you and we'd like you to hear our position, that's just a campaign contribution. So even in the case of a bill like this, where there doesn't seem to be any public merit to it at all, mm-hmm. unless you happen to be an alcohol distributor... Even in this case, we can't say for sure that money bought this vote? There's no way to absolutely nail that down. My friend, yes, we suspect all kinds of conspiracies. And the problem is we almost never find out if we're right. Well, today, on our program, for once, we find out. We get the most definitive, satisfying proof possible. Today we're devoting our program to one story in which we get a look inside the back rooms of one international business. And we see the intricate workings, recorded on tape, tapes we have, of people putting the fix in. This is also the story of an FBI informant, an informant who had so many different lies going with so many different people that eventually he got caught by his own lies. Today's program, 
the fix is in. Stay with us. Ekwon, this is the story of the fix being in on a global scale. Five companies from Japan, Korea, and the United States, including a company called ADM, Archer Daniels Midland, based in Decatur, Illinois, a company that is perhaps best known to public radio listeners for their underwriting spots on many of our programs, a company that donates aggressively to both political parties, a company whose chairman has been close to a number of presidents and senators, a company that has the fix in so thoroughly that you, I, all of us are ADM consumers, and we don't even have any choice about it. I mean, literally, if you walk into an American kitchen and start taking away all the things that have ADM ingredients in them, pretty soon you're not going to be able to make dinner. Kurt Eichenwald covered the fix at ADM for the New York Times and then consolidated his reporting into a rather gripping account of what happened at ADM, a book called The Informant. They're in Kellogg's cornflakes, they're in waffles, they're in Gerber cereals, they're in popsicles, they're in pepperoni, they're in pudding. Um, they sell an additive that goes into uh, laundry detergent. Uh, there isn't a single laundry detergent that doesn't have uh, citric acid in it. Uh, they, the same product is found in every form of uh, soft drink that's available on the market. So if you have a Coke, you have a Pepsi, you're, you're dealing with ADM in a couple of different, uh, uh, for a couple of different ingredients. This is the story of how ADM's stock price dropped by 50%, how the president of one of its largest divisions went to prison with the company's vice chairman, son of its chairman, after the FBI caught ADM red-handed, on videotape, engaged in an international criminal conspiracy. The FBI's key witness was an informant inside ADM, an informant who helped the FBI record what are probably the most remarkable videotapes ever made of an American corporation right in the middle of committing a crime. And the whole case dropped into the FBI's lap as a kind of fluke, because of a lie. A lie that later turned out to be relatively small compared with the lies that were later revealed. A lie told by a young executive who wasn't meeting his production goals at ADM. Mark Whitaker was a, a very young um, whiz kid executive who'd been hired by ADM to run its newest and most high-tech division, um, the bioproducts division. This division used biotechnology to make all sorts of food additives. And ADM's first big foray into the field was a product called lysine, an additive to hog and chicken feed that helps fatten them up fast. Mark was 32, boyish-looking and outgoing, but things were not going well. The problem was that the lysine plant wasn't working. Mm -hmm. um, and one day, Mark Whitaker came into the office and he said, I just received a phone call at my home from one of our competitors, and they have a saboteur in our plant. Uh, the man who called me said he would identify the saboteur if we paid him $10 million. And what should we do? And uh, ADM reacted to that, first by um, alerting the Central Intelligence Agency, which uh, determined that uh, they had no authority over this matter. So the, uh, the matter was turned over to the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And much, much later, Mark Whitaker admitted that he, he had made this up, actually. The, the, the whole story of the saboteur was fictitious. It's possible that Whitaker told the story to buy himself more time to get the plant running. In any case, this one lie gets the FBI involved. They start poking around at ADM. And one night, November 5th, 1992... 
a special agent named Brian Shepard drops in on Mark Whitaker at his house to put a device on his phone which would tap his calls. You know, Whitaker was supposedly getting these phone calls from the competitor uh, asking for money, and so the FBI wanted to get that on tape. Um, he, he hooked up the device. Um, he was about to head out the door. Um, Mark Whitaker's wife, who was aware that um, there were other things going on at ADM that her husband had not told the FBI, was pushing him to open up. Um, he wasn't going to, as Shepard literally was headed out to his car, she began to push past her husband to go outside and tell the agent what she knew. And instead, um, Whitaker called out to uh, Agent Shepard and said, you know, do you have a moment? So he stops the agent, and he tells the agent um, what? Well, he and, he and Shepard go into Shepard's car, and they're sitting there, and he, after dancing around the topic for some time, he tells Shepard, um, I have been working with ADM to fix worldwide prices of uh, lysine, and it's not just lysine. We fix prices in a number of products. What Whitaker was telling Shepard that night was ADM is in a massive conspiracy with all of its competitors in this market to rip off its customers. At one level, this is a completely foolhardy thing to say to a federal agent. And if you ask Mark Whitaker today about why he did it, he'll tell you that he felt boxed in, that his wife would have told them anyway or that the FBI would figure out that something was going on by listening to his phone calls. But once he said it, the FBI asked him to prove it by recording some conversations that would confirm this rather incredible story. So Mark agreed, not thinking it would take much time. Here he is. Well, my, my goal was, and what I was hoping was, was that we would have had that meeting that night. I would have verified it in a tape a couple of days later, and that would have been it. I would have never dreamed it would have been almost three years of helping them. I met with the FBI sometimes two nights a week. It, it ended up being a second job for me. I mean, it took a tremendous amount of hours over the 33 months. Well, I made literally hundreds of tapes, I think over 200 hours of tapes and hundreds of tapes themselves. I've spoken to a lot of people. Uh, in law enforcement about what Whitaker did. Again, reporter Kurt Eichenwald. And again and again, I have heard phrases like, there has never been a cooperating witness like this guy. Um, I've never seen anybody who's so skilled at doing it. They told me a few times I was the best, uh, the best informant they've ever had. The FBI. They told me that a lot. Um, he was a cooperating witness on a scale like there has never been seen. I mean, this was an individual at the highest reaches of a Fortune 500 company who was walking around wired all the time. Hello? Hey, Mr. Hey, Mr. Tani. Uh, how are you? Fine, how are you? Uh, fine. Um, thank you very much for your telephone. And he was very, very good at it. No he was very good at drawing people out 
Uh, he was very good at making sure people were positioned in front of the cameras that were hidden away in a room somewhere. Um, he was very good at getting them to repeat themselves. In other words, uh, there was an earlier conversation that was missed on tape, so we got them to repeat everything when the tapes were rolling. Did, um, how do you feel about the meeting in Paris last week, the October 5th meeting? How do you feel about it? I think, uh, how do I feel? I think uh, I appreciate that meeting for the price, because uh, if there, there were uh, no such a meeting, I think uh, we were about to decrease the price. Bob Herndon was one of the two FBI agents who worked most closely with Mark Whitaker. He says that one of Whitaker's most impressive moments was right at the beginning of the investigation, when the FBI had this problem that they did not know how to solve with the case. They knew that the five companies that make glycine were meeting. There were two from Korea, two from Japan, and ADM. But the companies always met overseas, outside the reach of U.S. law enforcement, in countries where the FBI was not allowed to set up secret cameras and videotape them. So how to get them to meet in the U.S. Here's Agent Herndon. We would have these debriefing sessions about once a week. And this particular one, in July of 1993... By the way, one sign that you have testified in a federal trial, you remember the dates of everything. In July of 1993, that night, myself and, and Brian Shepard, the other agent I worked with on this case, were, were kind of hitting him hard about, well, Mark, what suggestions can you come up with? How can we get this next meeting between all of the competitors in the United States? And it was Mark Whitaker himself who suggested golf. And so they think about it. Hawaii has great golf courses. Again, reporter Kurt Eichenwald. And so they tell Whitaker to dangle the prospect of a uh, golf game on a stellar course in Hawaii to the Japanese competitors as a means of enticing them to come to the United States. Hello. Hello. Ah, uh, yes. Mr. Momoto. Yes, speaking. Is it Mark speaking? Well, we were listening to the call while the call was going on. And Mark Whitaker asked Mr. Momoto to um, think about coming to the United States for the next Lysine meeting. I think that our next meeting, since you guys hosted the Vancouver meeting, I think ABM should host the next meeting, don't you think? Yeah, that's fine. And maybe we host it in uh, Maui. Maui? The Lysine, you know, have the Lysine meeting, the group meeting like we had last time in Vancouver, yeah. the group Lysine meeting, to have it in Maui, Hawaii. Maui, Hawaii is uh, still the United States. Now, of course, Whitaker knows exactly what the man means. You know, what's wrong with still in the United States? He knows what it means. But rather than letting it drop, he says, well, what does that mean, still in the United States? Because he wants it on tape. Yeah, but what's that mean, still in the United States? Still the United States means the United States is uh, very severe for the control of antitrust activity, no? <laughs> well, there's your bingo moment. The man just stated, still in the United States means that uh, the United States is very severe for the control of antitrust activities. That statement there, Agent Bob Herndon, Mimoto's explanation about the laws of the United States became a, a very key statement in the prosecution of him and his company. That statement showed that the competitors knew what they were doing was violating the law of the United States. And as soon as he gets that on tape, Whitaker moves on 
goes back to trying to lure him. His next big phrase is, well, Hawaii next to an 18-hole golf course. Um, you know, he's not going to let it go. Yeah, but you think in a, in a hotel in Hawaii next to an 18-hole golf course? <laughs> Maui, Maui is very convenient for us, but uh, I don't know. Uh, oh, if your company judges, no problem, maybe I will consult with the legal department. Again, Mark Whitaker. I was intense about it. If they wanted something, I was going to get it, get it for them. Would you would you psych up before uh, one of these meetings? That is, would you have a thing? You know, you tell yourself, All right, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. Here's the way I'm going to play this off. Would you go through that in your head? I would. I would mentally go over every detail, every detail, and they would tell me three or four things they needed in particular, and I didn't have to write them down. And I would make sure in each one of those meetings that I hit all three or four of those things in every single meeting. I was obsessed with it. The phone calls worked. They had the meeting in Hawaii and other meetings as well. For one get-together in Atlanta, a tape recorder that was concealed inside Whitaker's briefcase wasn't working. So he left it with FBI agents who frantically tried to fix it. And then he went to the meeting room where the big five lysine producers were getting together, where a secret camera was already concealed inside a lamp. So they, you know, they arrive in they arrive in uh in this very nice room and and it's the very opening of the meeting and they're just sort of, you know, for lack of a better term, taking attendance. And um Whitaker says to the assembled group, now we, you know, we have a couple other people joining us, uh don't I think, don't we? And you know, one of the executives, yeah, we have a couple more and um then uh Someone, I mean, one of these guys says, well, is this, you know, two more from uh, this Korean company? And there you come, two more, right? Two more at that point? Two more. Two more. Oh, two more. We've got plenty of space, yeah. Two more from B1? Uh, and um, one of the European executives is over, you know, fixing himself a, a drink at the banquet car. And he says, no, no, you know, it's two, two more from the Korean company and one from Tyson and one from Conagra. Uh, one from Tyson, one from Conagra, one from... <laughs> <laughs> now this is, you know, I guess price-fixing humor. Tyson and Conagra are the customers who are being among those who are being cheated. And so the Jap- one of the Japanese executives jumps in with his own joke. He looks straight at Whitaker and says, I'm one from FBI. <laughs> and one from FBI. <laughs> Which, in fact, is exactly what Whitaker was. Now, as all this is going on in the other room, the FBI at that moment has successfully fixed the briefcase recorder. And so they need to get it back to him. So they're, you know, the, the conspirators are laughing about FBI, FTC. There's a knock at the door. And one of the Japanese executives looks up and says, yes, FTC? And Whitaker walks over and opens the door, and no, it it wasn't the FTC, it it was the FBI. At this point, the agent, Bob Herndon, pretends he works for the hotel and says, I hope I have the right room. This was left down in the cafeteria, and hands Whitaker the briefcase with the secret recorder. 
when they said that, did your heart just sink? No, at that point, I've at that point I've already made tapes for well over two years. At that point, and uh, I I knew they were just joking, and they had a lot of hundred percent trust in me. Did you imagine to yourself what would have happened if they would have caught you in one of these meetings? No, I just went in with the impression that I'm never going to get caught. Never. Wow. I mean, I was very trusted within those groups. I mean, I was even being discussed to be the next president of the whole company. And I was so trusted in that within that company and also among the Japanese and Korean companies that there was just, there was just no way that I was even concerned about it. Did, um, did you have a plan for what you would say if, in fact, somebody noticed the, the wire on you? Well, I really didn't have a plan. I was just counting on not getting caught. I told writer Kurt Eichenwald, who spent years getting to know Mark Whitaker, how surprised I was when Whitaker told me he never considered the possibility that he'd be caught. I wasn't sure if he was telling me the truth. I totally believe that. Whitaker always believed that no one would ever question him. He would sometimes come into the United States carrying... Um, cash in his suitcase that he did not declare, uh, you know, effectively committing a crime. Like thousands and thousands of dollars cash. Thousands and thousands of dollars in cash. And when asked, well, what would you have done if you had been caught? He looked at the person asking the question and blinked and said, well, it never occurred to me they'd stop me. Why would they? I'm a respectable looking guy. I'm a I'm, a, you know, I wear a suit. I, I'm an executive. Why would why would they ever stop me? And it, that's the kind of uh, attitude he just he just always believes that he's got control of the situation. And in the end, that's also the the trait that led him to become completely undone. Yeah, but it's also one of the traits that made him such a good witness. Absolutely. On these tapes, the other men at the price-fixing meetings also seem to have remarkable faith that they won't get caught. What's striking is not how nervous they all seem as they set up an international criminal conspiracy, but how at ease. When people come to deliver lunch, they do not even bother to hide the chart that they've made, dividing the world market among themselves. If anything, they make world domination seem profoundly banal. In a typical tape, the scene is a Marriott Hotel conference room in Irvine, California, half-eaten breakfast rolls on the table, hotel coffee cooling in the air conditioning. There's an easel, one of those big corporate presentation notepads. And, can't take over the world without, magic markers. In the movies, this would happen somewhere in a hollowed-out volcano on a remote Pacific island. But fixing a world market turns out to involve dozens of picky little details. If you're going to raise the price, should you do it all at once or gradually? How gradually? What should the prices be for bushels and carloads, for delivered and undelivered, for full or half orders? There is a surprising amount of long division and fractions and multiplication with long pauses as they work out the math. Okay. 230 times... Six. Six. Okay. It's sickening and a little thrilling to think that any bright fifth grader has the math skills necessary to fix a global market. 
any young people listening to the radio right now have ever asked the eternal question, when in real life will I ever use long division? Now you know when. There is one point in this conspiracy where these conspirators sit and they're ready to fix the Canadian market, and they do so by flipping open the paper, the, you know, the newspaper, checking the exchange rate for that day, uh, running a quick calculation, saying, okay, here's the price in Canada, and moving on. And, and they literally fixed a $100 million market in two minutes. The only hard parts of running an international criminal conspiracy are kind of what you'd expect. They have trouble trusting each other. And it's not clear how to verify that everyone is sticking by the agreement. They talk a lot about that. At one point, somebody even suggests calling in auditors from an accounting firm. But it's not clear how to divide all the profits. And this is a very interesting business problem. If they are essentially bypassing the workings of the free market, that is, if they're not going to be competing for customers anymore, if they're all going to have the same price, if the fix is really in, then they have to decide up front how much of the world market in lysine each of the five companies will be allowed to have. Well, that's 2,000 tons out of that. So they want two. They want two. Kiowa wants two. Do you want to stay the same? Uh, they said it's like a six tons. So plus two. Plus two. one wants two. Mm-hmm. Okay. They can, they're told they can't have any more than the other big guys there. They each get two. So that's six and there's yeah, six. eight left. Six. So there's eight, eight left. Eight, yes. Is that right? Yeah. There's eight left. Also, if you're no longer working in a real competitive market, it kind of destroys the normal ways that your sales force is going to work. No longer will your salesman be able to get business by, for example, offering a lower price to a good customer. So what are they going to do instead? Lose the sale, says an ADM executive. Completely counterintuitive. And it's going to be very hard to explain to your sales team since they will not know that the fix is in. It's tough to do. If you lose the business, you're just going to have to be patient. Somebody's going to get the order. You know, I, I've, I've written a lot about corporate crime over the years, and I'll often give speeches. Again, reporter Kurt Eichenwald. And one of the things I used to say that I don't say anymore is, uh, you know, the, 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 the misconception of white-collar crime is that, you know, it starts off with some... Top-level executives sitting down, pointing at an underling and saying, let's go break the law. I said, it's usually much more subtle than that. Well, boy, was I wrong. Uh, You look at these tapes, and it is indisputable that that is exactly what was happening at ADM. I want to be closer to you than I am to any customer. (laughs) They are not your friend. They are not my friend. Uh, We've got to have them. Thank God we've got to have them. But they are not my friends. That's really how it was in that company. Again, FBI informant and former ADM executive Mark Whitaker. The customer is our enemy and the competitor is our friend, and I heard that hundreds of times. That, that should be the slogan, not supermarket to the world. Did you all ever talk about that slogan, supermarket to the world? Oh, I would see him on Sunday on, like, Meet the Press, and ADM's ad would come on as supermarket to the world, and we're so customer-focused and we're so people-focused, and... And I'm thinking, well, shoot, this whole week we've been fixing prices in order to rip off the consumers. I mean, we're sure not we're not the supermarket to the world. We were the super criminals of the world, but we were. The U.S. Justice Department estimates that ADM made $80 million by fixing the price of lysine. 
the biotech division, which had been in the red, turned into a huge profit center. Mark Whitaker claims that they went from $7 million a month in losses to $7 million in revenue. This presumably nudged up the price of chickens and pork for you and me by a few pennies. But for agricultural businesses, it meant a lot more than that. During the secret investigation, one of the FBI agents on the case, a man named John Hoyt, visited his sister and his brother-in-law. The brother-in-law just started his own feed business. Kodakamal tells a story. As a farmer, he was always dependent on the banks and the weather and a lot of things beyond his control. And he had decided to try and take control of his life. And this agent is um, sitting there after dinner with his brother-in-law, and they're just you know, looking up at the stars. And his brother-in-law starts spilling this story of how troubled his business is, how much difficulty he's having, because lysine prices are going through the roof. And he doesn't know how he's going to keep the business going. And um, the agent is listening to this, knowing not only that um, prices are not going to come down anytime soon, they're going to go up further, and he can't say anything about it. Well, coming up after the break, what happens when a person who is lying to everyone so he can help the FBI turns out to be lying to the FBI as well, lying in a big, big way. That's in a minute Public Radio International, when our program continues. This is American Life from Ira Glass. Each week in our show, of course, we choose some theme, bring you stories on that theme. Today's show, The Fix is In. And we're devoting most of our program today to one story that we originally ran on our show in the year 2000. We're rerunning it today because it was just made into a movie called The Informant, starring Matt Damon. It's a story about an international criminal conspiracy, and it involves a company called ADM, Archer Daniels Midland, and an FBI informant who revealed the conspiracy, Mark Whitaker. One of the most stressful things for any person to do is to lie, to maintain a secret. Mark Whitaker worked as a double agent in his own life for three years. And at times, his behavior got a little strange. For instance, he firmly believed, up until the end, that when it was revealed that he had been spying on his co-workers, including people who were running the company, the company would reward him by promoting him to president. Or he would do things like um, trying to talk to an FBI agent about the case while they were in a public restroom, at great risk to himself. The executives who he was taping and spying on were just outside the restroom. Here's reporter Kurt Eichemald. The truth is that Mark Whitaker had some, and, and I believe has, some um, um, psychological issues that drive a lot of what he did here. I mean, this was a man who in the course of this investigation was literally coming apart. Uh, he, this was a man who stopped sleeping. Being in the situation during the time, I, I would not have said that my mental state was deteriorating, but I'm just hearing things that my wife tells me and, and other friends have told me since, since that time. Now it's been a while. It's been five years since 1995. And and, uh, but my wife's told me there are many times that I would be out in the driveway two or three in the morning blowing the driveway off with a gas blower, blowing the leaves off, and it'd be raining. Just like you're standing out there in the middle of the night and a leaf falls in the driveway and you use the leaf blower yeah. and just knock it away? Yeah. I mean, my wife and kids remember that frequently. And it'd be raining. I mean, it'd be raining. I'd be blowing leaves as it rained. I became over-compulsive. 
as a result of all this stress, over compulsive on certain things. And the driveway was one thing that I became addicted to. And she, my wife constantly said, you got to get some sleep. But what, I felt like, well, why lay there if you can't sleep? So I'd go up and do things. I'd go over to the horse table. I'd be riding horses three or four in the morning, come over, sleep for an hour, take a shower and go to work. And work till six or seven, meet the FBI in the evening and come back and start the routine all over again. But before all this, were you especially close to any, any of these guys who you were working with? No, not at all. None of them. I mean, I was close with a lot of people within the company, but not the ones that were the targets of this investigation. Not at all. What was it like for you, knowing that you're taping them and building a case against them, and here they are, you know, you're going out playing golf with them? What was that like for you? It was it was nerve wracking. I mean, there was just so much deception. Uh, there was so much deception for so long that, I mean, you're acting as their friend. In reality, you're taping them, and I mean, your your whole life is deception. There were three distinct lives that Mark was leading. He was deceiving some people about the fact that he was cooperating with his competitors. He was deceiving others about the fact that he was cooperating with the FBI. And after three years of meeting several nights a week with the FBI, collaborating with them, it turned out that he was deceiving the FBI as well. During one lunch over Mushu pork, I believe, it all unraveled. Again, Special Agent Bob Herndon. On the first week of August of 95, myself and Brian Shepard picked Mark Whitaker up at his house and we went to a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> and, um, just from the very beginning, after knowing Mark for two and a half years, it was pretty easy to see that something was on his mind. Mm-hmm. He wanted to tell us something. In fact, he started out the conversation by saying, my attorney does not want me to tell you this, but I need to tell you something. Well, right there I said, Mark, time out. You're not going to tell us anything your attorney does not want you to tell us. Reporter Kurt Eichenwald. But Whitaker can't stop himself. And while they're at lunch, Whitaker finally begins to spill his story. He starts talking about um, giving us examples. He starts saying, is this a crime? For, for example, he starts talking about employees taking pens and pencils from the company. <laughs> and, yeah. And uh, they tell him, you know, this is not a big deal. Don't worry about it. Whitaker says, well, suppose an executive used a corporate airplane for personal use. Well, the agents tell him, you know, maybe some tax implications, uh, but it's not really a major problem. And Whitaker says, well, let me give you one more. He's like, okay. Well, what if what if the activity involved was, was, was kickbacks to corporate executives? At that point in time, I said, Mark, what is it that you want to tell us? What is on your mind? And then after asking that question, he says, well, I need to tell you guys something. And he starts to tell us about his embezzlement of $500,000 from ADM. What'd you say to him? 
Why? Why didn't you tell us before? What is wrong with you? What were you thinking? And is this it? Is there anything else? Are there any other skeletons in your closet? Did you take any more than just 500,000? Is this it? And he swore up and down that $500,000 was it. And, the, and, the, and that turned out to not to be truthful over time. No. It turned out that he embezzled over $9 million. <laughs> Jim Griffin is a deputy assistant attorney general of the Justice Department's Antitrust Division in Washington, D.C. He was one of the lead prosecutors in the ADM case. He remembers hearing the news about the embezzling. I could hardly forget that. It was um, August 3rd, 1995. It ranked right up there with one of the worst days of my professional career, yes. At that point, was your, was your feeling that uh, he could very seriously jeopardize the case? It, it, it's not a happy day when you hear that the cooperating witness you anticipated relying on telling the story to a jury and, and describing the events leading up to and captured on tape um, has uh, so destroyed his credibility that He's probably useless as a witness and um, is engaged in criminal activity that you're going to have to investigate and prosecute. One frightening possibility for the prosecution, that none of those beautiful videotapes, unprecedented videotapes, of corporate officials conspiring to fix prices, all painstakingly shot over three years, that none of them would be usable in court because they wouldn't have a witness who would confirm what they were and who the people were and when they all happened. The Justice Department solved this by getting some of the foreign businessmen at the meetings to testify against ADM. By concealing his embezzlement from the FBI for three years during the investigation, Mark Whitaker violated the terms of what it meant to be a cooperating witness. Not only would he be prosecuted for the $9.5 million, he would also be prosecuted for price-fixing. In other words, the videotapes that he had made so carefully would be used as evidence against him. To this day, Mark Whitaker insists that it was common in ADM for executives to siphon off money like he did to themselves, that it was expected that the only reason that ADM told the federal government about it was to punish him. Federal authorities and journalists, including Kurt Eichenwald, have investigated this claim and found no evidence that it is true. ADM, by the way, declined to comment about this or Mark Whitaker or price-fixing on our program. Whitaker spiraled downward. He revealed all sorts of damaging information about his case to reporters. He claimed he was abducted by kidnappers. He wrote fake letters and faxes to all sorts of people. He tried to kill himself. He undermined his own attorney, Jim Epstein. At one point, Epstein flew to the Justice Department in Washington, D.C. The government had great evidence to convict Whitaker if they decided to use it. Epstein wanted to convince them to offer Whitaker a plea bargain deal, a guilty plea in exchange for a shorter sentence. Kurt Eichenwald. Epstein went to Washington and made what, by all accounts, was a stellar presentation where he talked about, rather than talking about Mark Whitaker the person, he talked about Mark Whitaker the symbol, Mark Whitaker as um, what this means for law enforcement. Yes, Mark stole $9 million, but he gave you 
uh, people who were committing crimes, you know, many, many multiples of that. And if what ends up happening here is you guys insist on having a very long sentence, then we will have a sentencing hearing. And I will lay out everything that has happened to Mark, good, bad, and different. I will lay out how he has been out there by himself for two years. I will lay out how he had no training, how he had no support. And the statement he made that just rang throughout the room is, you know, and then all of my words will be picked up in newspapers all around the country. Everyone will read it and you will never ever get a phone call from somebody who might be a cooperating witness again. And it's true. I mean, it was a true statement and it was very powerful. And they were, there was the possibility that Whitaker would end up with as little as three years. Epstein was very happy about this, but when he presented it to Whitaker, Whitaker reacted to that by deciding, you know, if this person wants me to plead guilty, um, essentially he decided that that, uh, that uh, Epstein must be part of the government conspiracy to get him. Whitaker fired Epstein and got himself a new lawyer, somebody without much experience in these kind of cases. In some sense, the last straw came for Whitaker when he accused the FBI agent who had contacted him in the first place Brian Shepard, of ordering him to destroy evidence and denying him access to doctors and lawyers, serious charges that he later admitted that he'd made up. But they did a lot of damage, mostly to himself. Whitaker didn't know that behind the scenes, the people in the antitrust case were trying to get things to work out for him. You know, Whitaker does have this thing of, uh, he did have this thing of turning against people who were his allies. He turned against Jim Epstein, his first lawyer. He turned against the FBI that worked with him on the antitrust case. And he turns around and goes after, you know, a, a beloved member of this team with a story that upends this man's career. They have to open up an investigation. That he has to end up with a lawyer. I mean, it was very, they have to, he has a lawsuit he has to deal with. Uh, at that point, Mark Whitaker had nobody in the government who could even who even the slightest way care one whit about what happened to him. In the end, Whitaker was sentenced to ten and a half years. The ADM executives convicted of price fixing only had to serve sentences of three years. ADM paid a fine of $100 million, which was ten times bigger than any previous antitrust fine. It was a landmark case. It changed how the antitrust division and the entire Justice Department, frankly, viewed business conduct. This is Jim Muchnick, one of the federal prosecutors in the case. In the sense that when I started in the antitrust division in 1991, antitrust prosecutions were more white glove in orientation. For example, it was virtually unheard of to conduct search warrants, to use tape-recorded evidence, to engage in confrontational interviewing, meaning that unannounced drop-in interviews by agents and attorneys of suspected price fixers. just didn't happen. It's interesting to think uh, to what degree that change in law enforcement is due to Mark Whitaker. I don't think any of the people still in the division would like to admit it. 
how much he's meant to antitrust enforcement. But if you're asking me, he was it. He totally changed the antitrust enforcement policy. What a flawed vessel for, for, for doing good he, he turned out to be. Yes, he did. ADM didn't exactly lead the antitrust division to tackle more cases. It's still about 85 or 90 active cases each year. But now half the cases are international ones, like ADMs. The investigations are more aggressive. And to give you a sense of just how quickly the fines have grown, ADM was the largest fine ever back in 1995. By 2000, it was only the fifth largest. Antitrust prosecutions netted over a billion dollars in fines in just those four years. Half of that from just one case. A half-billion-dollar penalty to Hoffman LaRoche for fixing prices in vitamins. Ever wonder why they're so expensive? And to get to the question that we all wonder about when we hear about these kinds of cases, here's a little talk that I had with Special Agent Herndon. How, how typical do you think this is? Well, it's strictly speaking from what the evidence of the case showed us, it appears to me that this is more typical than we realize. Yeah. You know, we saw how casual these business executives were in dealing with, with one, one another. Um, you know, we used to joke at one point in the case that if you saw a group of middle ma- middle-aged um, white males with gray hair getting together in a hotel room during the middle of the day, no good can come from that. So when you're in the grocery store, do you think about this stuff? I do now. I didn't just look at the products in the supermarket with suspicion. I looked at everything that's on sale everywhere. Writer Kurt Eichenwald. It went through my head when I was driving. It went through my head when I was going to sleep. It went through my head when I was walking down through the grocery store. It went through my head when I opened my refrigerator. I used to look at the ingredients labels on you know, the Hellman's mayonnaise and, and see where the ingredients were from ADM. You know, there is no way to watch these tapes and listen to these tapes and not wonder. Oh, this is an official agenda for the meeting on the issue? Everything we are doing today is legal, but just... Am I right now being a victim of a criminal conspiracy? And to this day, I don't know the answer to that question. In light of how everything unfolded, one of the most intriguing questions about this entire case has to do with that very first night that Whitaker spoke to an FBI agent in his car, admitting that he was part of a conspiracy and agreeing to help the FBI. Whitaker says to this day that he only did that because of his wife's insistence and because of the possibility that he would be caught by the FBI for price-fixing himself. But maybe, just maybe, he agreed to cooperate with the FBI because he suddenly realized that they were snooping around and they might discover that he was embezzling. Kurt Eichenwald. If you think about it, he knew the entire saboteur story, the thing that had gotten the FBI there, was a fake. He knew he had made it up and that they weren't going to be able to find any evidence that this, in fact, was occurring. He knew that if anybody started scratching the surface of him, which would certainly be what he, would happen, you know, since he had just lied to federal agents and telling them this story – that it would not take very long that there was the potential they would start finding all of these embezzlements he'd engaged in. He's like, you're looking, you're looking at the saboteur. Wait, look over here at price fixing. And the FBI looked over there. I've often thought about that. FBI agent Bob Herndon. 
And I think my conclusion now is in an ironic twist that it was the embezzlement scheme that forced him to cooperate with the FBI and that led to all of the convictions in the price-fixing investigation. So it's something good that came out of something bad, really. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, that's not unusual. Um, you know, in, in my line of work, it, it often takes a crook to catch a crook. It's just that in this case, we thought we had the exception that he was going to turn out to be doing the right thing for all of the right reasons. It's like the, it's like the FBI, well, we're going to th- say you're a hero for what you did right, but, for the, but, but you did right because you were so well at deceiving, but the same way we're going to smack you down and give you a ten-and-a-half-year sentence for what you did wrong. To me, they both come in the same package. I mean, I was only a good informant because, because of what I did well for him. Lie. Yeah. yeah. Both, this is the package. In the end, one of the most surprising facts about this case is that it ever happened at all. It was pure accident that the FBI stumbled upon it. It was luck that they found a guy who was simultaneously well-connected, skilled at gathering evidence, and willing to become a cooperating witness before any lawyer had a chance to tell him not to. Today, Mark Whitaker says that the only reason that he continued taping people after the first week or two was that he thought that if he didn't, the FBI would get enough evidence without him to throw him in prison, which Agent Herndon admits today isn't true. The FBI's case would have probably fallen apart without him. Mark Whitaker was simply the only person in a position to gather the evidence that we needed to prove what was going on. I asked Mark Whitaker about this during our interview at a minimum security federal prison in Edgefield, South Carolina. Knowing what I know now, keep in mind I was only seven or eight years out of college at that point, and I didn't know anything about law enforcement at that stage. Knowing what I know now, there is no way they would have had hardly any evidence to do anything, and all I would have had to do is go to ADM and tell them what was going on, and ADM would have, would have worked with me so much and put so much behind it that there's no way they could have done anything. There's no way. I definitely regret my part of it because, to me, my family's more important than than solving the price-fixing problems of the world, and therefore I wish I just would have left and and, uh, been with my family instead of being sent in here as a result of working on a big price-fixing case. You did good by accident. Yeah, by accident. Purely by accident. Believe me. (laughs) Thank you so much. And with that, the guards took Mark Whitaker away to dinner. He looks good, by the way. He's tan, slim, runs every day. His wife and kids visit every weekend. Prison suits him. I didn't see Mark again for nine years. And then in 2009, just this week, I caught up with him at the premiere of The Informant, the film where Matt Damon plays him. I asked Mark if he remembered me and producer Alex Bloomberg visiting him in prison in South Carolina, and he said, sure. He said it was September 10th, 2000, which I don't know if that's right or not. He says he likes the film, and people sitting near him heard him laughing the whole way through. 
Magnassa said a lot of what he did back in those days was a result of a bipolar disorder. He's on meds now. He told me all about him. I sure did a lot of crazy stuff back then, he told me. Special thanks today to Kurt Eichenwald, who graciously consented back in 2000 to let us do a radio version of his book, The Informant, which I have to say is a real page-turner. The new movie, as we've said, opens this week in theaters everywhere. We have uh, no financial stake in this movie at all, so I feel free to say the following. It's kind of amazing. It sticks to the facts of the story surprisingly uh, closely. You'll recognize entire scenes and dialogue from what you have just heard today. And somehow, even though it's sticking closely to the facts... It's a comedy. They did a really amazing job. Today's program was produced by Alex Bloomberg and myself with Susan Burton, Blue Chevenny, and Julie Snyder. Adrian Mathewitz runs our website. Seth Lind is our production manager. Production help from Aaron Scott. Special thanks today to John Kimbrough, Larry Josephson, Billy and Jeff Munchnik, and Kirkland and Ellis. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. WBEZ Management Oversight for our program by our boss, Mr. Tori Malatia, who is so mean when he describes the This American Life staff this way. I mean, you're acting as their friend. In reality, you're taping them. and I mean, your, your whole life is deception. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. I'm all lost in the supermarket. I can no longer shop happily. I came in here for the special offer. Guaranteed personality. PRI Public Radio International